Hey everyone, Lainey here, and I hope you miss me as much as I miss you and hosting this show regularly. But right now, I'm out on maternity leave taking care of my little girl, Tilden, and I just am really thankful that you guys are giving me that time to spend with her and that my friend Josh Hallmark from the True Crime Bullshit podcast has agreed to host this episode for me. Trust me, it's really incredible content. Josh has an amazing voice, and I'm a huge fan of his show, so please make sure you follow True Crime Bullshit. Now, a little bit about True Crime Bullshit. It's a serialized podcast that explores one of America's most mysterious and meticulous serial killers. The first few seasons are about Israel Keys, and the latest season is also about Israel Keys. You can find True Crime Bullshit on most social media channels by searching for at TrueCrimeBS or head to TrueCrimeBullshit.com to learn more. Okay. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club podcast. I'm your guest host, Josh, of True Crime Bullshit. I'm sitting in for Lainey, who is on maternity leave. In 2018, Berkshire County in Massachusetts saw an explosion of violent murders. In the years between 2009 and 2019, there were approximately 25 homicides in Berkshire County, with approximately 25% of these in 2018. Okay, on to the show. The new year began with the murder of Krista Lee Steele Nudslein by her husband, Mark Steele Nudslein, on January 4, 2018. On January 5, Mark went to the Adams Police Department and reported that he had done something very bad and that he should be put in handcuffs, holding out his hands to be cuffed. He went on to tell the interviewing officer that he had struck Krista several times with a hammer and then stabbed her in the back with a stainless steel kitchen knife. Officers found Krista's body in the basement of the couple's home, wrapped in a tarp. Mark told officers Krista often belittled him and called him names. Mark said he snapped at around 5 p.m. on January 4th. According to Mark's attorney, he and Krista had been arguing, although his attorney would not reveal the nature of the argument. He simply said that Mark and Krista had been at one another verbally for some lengthy period of time. Afterwards, according to statements made to the police, Mark maintained his composure, cleaning up, taking a shower, and then going to the liquor store. The autopsy report indicated that Krista had suffered blunt force trauma, some of which was consistent with defensive injuries. According to the medical examiner, Krista suffered from multiple basilar skull fractures caused by blunt force trauma. The stab wound to her back sliced through the upper lobe of her right lung and punctured her heart, which caused her death by loss of blood. Krista Lee Steele Nudslein had been born Christopher Steele in Minnesota in 1975. Her father, Willie Steele, said Krista played with Barbie dolls and put pajamas on her head as long hair. When she was five, 
her parents divorced and Krista had to go into foster care. When she was in fifth grade, she was placed with a police officer and his wife, flourishing under their care. She attended Sunday school, took piano lessons, and went on family vacations. She missed her family and visited her cousins and grandparents on weekends. This created problems with her behavior, as after every visit she was more challenging. In eighth grade, she went into a group home, where she stayed until she was 16. Krista met Tina Katuski before being emancipated, and the two became a couple. Tina said Krista often dressed in women's clothing, but thought it was a joke. Tina and Krista had a volatile, often physical relationship, starting when Krista began a relationship with a male. When Tina was 19, she got pregnant and stayed with Krista until the baby was three months old. Tina took the baby and left Krista. After this, Krista transitioned to living full-time as a woman and dating only men. Krista legally changed her name in 2000, although she continued having struggles. She was homeless at one point, jobless, had no financial support and no family support. She was once attacked for being trans, suffering a traumatic brain injury which led to memory loss. For a decade between 1995 and 2005, Krista was frequently in trouble with police, being arrested for prostitution, panhandling, and domestic assault. She frequently panhandled outside the Mayo Clinic, along with a man she called her husband and two poodles. Once, she was panhandling outside of a church and came face-to-face with her former foster parents. Krista fled before talking to them. This was the last time she saw them. In the mid-2000s, Krista uprooted and moved to Massachusetts, where she found her home, a place she felt she fit in. In 2007, she married her first husband, a divorced cook also from Minnesota. They were married at First Churches of Northampton. Krista became very active in trans activism and soon realized that the only time the trans community came together was for the annual Transgender Day of Remembrance, a day that honors trans victims of hate-motivated violence. In 2008, she and others in the community created the Pride March and Rally, which was attended by 1,000 people. Krista and her first husband struggled financially in those first years in Northampton, living in their van for a while until they could afford an apartment. Then the van finally gave out. So Krista bought a used motor scooter to go to and from activist events, even traveling on busy highways. After the rally and march were established, Krista turned her attention to pageantry. She created Miss Trans Northampton in 2009. This pageant focused more on the contestants' femininity and beauty, unlike other trans pageants that were more about costumes. This was Krista's world, according to her close friends. She loved managing the pageants, and she created a positive environment for trans women, although they were, and are, severely oppressed. The pageant in 2010 was expanded to be the Miss Trans New England, and then later, 
Miss Trans America. In 2014, Krista and her first husband were divorced. They grew apart, essentially living separate lives. She met a man online and a new relationship started. In 2015, she married her second husband, even though he had been convicted of armed robbery. By 2016, the relationship had taken a turn, and Krista filed an affidavit for a restraining order. She said she was scared for her safety and that her husband had stabbed her in the past and tried to stab her friends. By the end of 2016, she was divorced from her second husband. She had also met the man who would become her third husband and, ultimately, her murderer. Mark Mann was divorced, macho, and seemingly adored Krista. However, one of Krista's friends said Mark was wicked nice when he was sober, but when he got drunk, he became violent. Many calls were made to the Adams Police Department, one time resulting in Mark being arrested. However, Krista forgave him, and he came back. The couple married in April 2017 at Windsor Lake. Krista was wearing a wedding gown she made herself, with beads stitched into the bodice. Mark, who would take Krista's last name to become Mark Steele Nudsleen, told her that she was unlike anyone he had ever met, and that's why I fell in love with you. Unfortunately, transgender people are more vulnerable to violence than those who identify as the sex they were born with. A 2015 study found that 31% of transgender people have experienced domestic violence, compared to 20% of non-trans people. The reasons are many and complex. For one, many transgender people do not have a support group. They are estranged from their families and fear going to the police. Transphobia is still a very real issue as many transgendered individuals report being fired because they were trans. They are harassed frequently, and almost half have been sexually assaulted in their lives. Additionally, straight men dating or married to transgender women have their sexuality questioned, which can lead to tension. Mark Steele Nudsleen finally gave a reason for the murder. The couple had been sleeping on an air mattress on the first floor of their home because it was hot upstairs. Krista yelled at him for moving around too much, and Mark got up, went to the basement, and retrieved the hammer he beat Krista with. He plunged the knife into her back with so much force it was still stuck during the autopsy. Mark initially entered a plea of not guilty, but changed that to guilty and he was sentenced to life in prison. Krista was the first transgender person of 2018 to be murdered. The next violent homicide occurred on April 10th of 2018. That evening, Hatfield police were called to a fire in a field off Bridge Lane around 9.30 p.m. When officers arrived, they found a body burning. It was later determined to be a man and to be that of Daniel Cruz, aged 44. Daniel had been shot in his neck and torso, as listed on his death certificate.
Thermal injuries were listed as factors contributing to his death, but not the actual cause. On April 9th, 2018, Daniel went with his cousin to Meadowbrook Apartments, where his cousin was attempting to get money he was owed from Nurkin Omar Morales. Nurkin wasn't there, but Pedro Soto Rodriguez was. He and Daniel got into a shouting match as Daniel and his cousin were walking away. Pedro sent a text to Nurkin describing what had happened and said, I want to shoot so bad. The next day, Nurkin and another person went to Pedro's apartment, where Daniel was allegedly waiting in the hallway. Pedro and Daniel got into a fight in the hallway, and Daniel cut Pedro. Pedro yelled for Nurkin, who came out of the apartment with a gun, and fired five to six shots. Three of these hit Daniel. One bullet hit his spinal cord and lodged in his body. Another round hit his colon and lodged into his abdomen. The third hit a rib, fracturing it and perforating his liver and a lung. Pedro and Nurkin put Daniel's body in Pedro's room and left the apartment going to a friend's apartment. They told friends what happened and the group of ten people went back to Pedro's apartment and wrapped the body in a sleeping bag. The group smoked marijuana while Daniel's body lay on the floor, often kicking it and saying things like, You shouldn't have come here. Later, they put the body in Pedro's closet and cleaned up the crime scene. Pedro told one individual, identified as L.R., not to call the police, which eventually led to a charge of witness intimidation. Seven people went to Pedro's mother's home in Connecticut to plan what to do with Daniel's body. They decided that purchasing machetes to cut up the body was the best bet. But after they returned to Pedro's apartment with the machetes, they gave up on that idea. They wrapped his body in black trash bags and then took it to a field in Hatfield and lit it on fire. Afterwards, they rented a room in West Springfield to party and stay out of town. Pedro was arrested two weeks later. Pedro was charged with accessory after the fact murder burning personal property, two counts of withholding evidence from a criminal proceeding, two counts of conspiracy, improper disposition of a human body, and intimidation of a witness. Pedro was sentenced to seven to eight years, one charge of withholding evidence from a criminal proceeding, and sentenced separately on each of the other charges. But all of those will run concurrently with the seven to eight year sentence. Pedro must complete the sentences from two prior cases before these sentences even begin. The shooter, Nurkin Morales, was sentenced to 15 to 20 years on a charge of voluntary manslaughter, as part of a plea agreement. He was also charged with improper disposition of a human body and conspiracy, as well as other charges. Mercedes Diaz Wright was charged with accessory after the fact to murder, burning personal property, two counts of withholding evidence from criminal proceedings, two counts of conspiracy, improper disposition of a human body, 
intimidation of a witness, unlawful possession of a firearm, unlawful possession of ammunition without identification card, misleading a police officer, and subornation of perjury. Mercedes was called the ringleader by her co-conspirators. She cleaned up the apartment and then hid the firearm afterwards. She was released on a surety bond under the condition she wear a GPS monitoring device and follow a curfew of 9 p.m. to 7 a.m. Kimberly Perez was charged with accessory after the fact to murder, burning personal property, withholding evidence from criminal proceedings, two counts of conspiracy, and improper disposition of a human body. She was released on her own recognizance and had similar restrictions to Mercedes, except her curfew was midnight to 5 a.m. Matthew Ross was charged with accessory to murder after the fact, while Joshua T. Ely was charged with perjury in relation to the grand jury investigation. Alondra Gill and Chelsea Rodriguez were also indicted on charges of accessory to murder after the fact and other charges. Information about their trials is not available. And it could be because the COVID-19 pandemic has slowed or halted many trials. On March 13, 2018, around 8 a.m. in the community of Sheffield, firefighters found five people dead inside. The five include couple Luke Karpinski and his wife, Justine Wilbur, and their three children, son Merrick, three years old, and Alex and Zoe, seven-year-old twins. One adult was found on the first floor, and the other adult was found on the second floor with the three children. It was later determined that Justine was by herself, while Luke was with the kids. Luke and Justine both worked as patent attorneys for different companies. Luke was a federal chemical patent examiner, and Justine worked for a law firm, where she worked on patents on a broad range of topics, including nanotechnology and cancer treatments. She was considered an expert in her field, both in the U.S. and internationally. When firefighters arrived at the scene, Justine Subaru was parked halfway down the driveway, facing the road, with the key still inside. Firefighters had to move the car to get their trucks to the house. Also found inside was a box with the family's financial paperwork, Justine's purse, and Luke's wallet. Neighbors told investigators this was not where she normally parked. She usually parked just off the garage door facing the house. It had been parked in its normal spot the night before, at around 7 p.m. Luke's truck was parked inside the garage, which was also abnormal, according to the neighbors. Over the following days, more information came out about the deaths. There were two 20-pound propane tanks found upstairs. An accelerant was used, and the smoke detectors had been disabled. Justine's throat had been brutally slashed well beyond her windpipe. Most neighbors said they had never heard the two arguing, but their closest neighbors said they had heard the couple fighting once a month or so, including the night of March 11th. 
The children had been picked up from school on March 12th by Luke, who told the school they all had dental appointments. However, Luke took them home to kill them and lay in wait for Justine. Investigators said all of this led them to believe the murders had been premeditated. The children and Justine were found wearing the same clothes they'd had on at school and work. Although Justine's mother said that there were no marital issues, investigators found that Luke suffered from a sex addiction and subsequently had extramarital affairs. Justine told a friend that he possibly had sex with prostitutes and was addicted to internet porn. This had left Justine setting parental controls on Luke's electronics, including the television. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Trust me, I have been there and I still struggle with these issues. But BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you like it's been there for me. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, which is so convenient for me, and it really makes me feel comfortable. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you need to. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in LGBTQ plus matters. Grief, self-esteem, trauma, relationships, anxiety, you name it. Anything you share with them is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, and they're available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours. The best thing is it's secure, convenient, professional, affordable, and it's not a crisis line. Best of all, like I said, it's a truly affordable option. True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code TCFC. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com TCFC. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash TCFC to get 10% off your first month. Luke and Justine were high school sweethearts at Wakona in 1996. Justine's sister, Kristen, also graduated that year out of a class of 132 students. The couple were remembered as two outstanding students. The couple moved away to pursue their careers before returning in 2016 to build a house. The house was completed in late 2017, right before Christmas, and the couple called it their carriage house, as they hoped to build a bigger home on the land someday. Justine was highly regarded by her colleagues, who said of her she was smart, knowledgeable, dedicated, and hardworking. She was a devoted mother to her wonderful children, and a true friend to everyone in our firm. The deaths were hard on the small community. It was hardest of all on Justine's mother, Terry, 
who held a special birthday dinner for Justine a year later. Terry wrote, To my beautiful daughter in heaven, I send these birthday wishes. I'm sure you are as amazing in heaven as you were in life. And to those of you she left behind, I give my heartfelt thanks for being such a long part of my daughter's life. A million wishes would not bring you back. I know, because I tried. A million tears would not bring you back. I know, because I tried. On Friday, April 13th of 2018, a 911 call was placed about a possible shooting at 53 Ashmere Drive. When officers arrived, they found the body of 24-year-old Cassetti Clark inside a vehicle. Cassetti had been shot multiple times, an autopsy later determined. She had gunshot wounds to her head, torso, and upper extremities. The morning of the incident, caseworkers from the Department of Children and Families were sent to the address to assist the children present. At the time, there was no idea how many children were there or who their parents were. Michael S. Boulay, Cassetti's boyfriend, and the father of their children, was arrested and charged with murder. He was held without bail before his arraignment. The investigation revealed Michael was the one who made the 911 call. When he placed the call, he said, I just killed my ex. It sounded like he was throwing up throughout the call. When officers arrived, they found Michael sitting on the ground beside a Dodge Journey SUV holding a 9mm handgun. Police told him to drop the gun and then took him into custody. The gun had an empty clip, but he had a full clip in his pocket. Michael told police that he and Cassidy had been dating for about nine years. Sometimes their fights had escalated into violence. The morning she died, she had shown up to pick up their children and a fight had erupted. Michael said Cassidy verbally assaulted him, which caused him to lose his temper. He pulled out his pistol from the small of his back and fired until the gun clicked. Cassidy and Michael had four children together, and Michael had another child from another relationship. Cassidy was studying to be a midwife and was slated to graduate in 2019. Michael was set to go to trial in early 2020. But in order to spare Cassidy's family the pain of enduring a trial, he pleaded guilty of homicide and was sentenced to life in prison. Cassidy's mother, Kim Forrest, read a victim impact statement during the sentencing. She said, Every day I wake up hoping this was a terrible nightmare. And every day my heart and soul are crushed anew. The fact she was taken from us, not by accident, but by the hands of someone we considered family, was a betrayal doubly hurtful. She also described Cassidy as a shining light that helped illuminate my path in this world. In May 2018, police making a routine traffic stop for a broken taillight uncovered a serial killer living in Springfield. Once the officer approached the vehicle, the driver sped off but crashed into a police car. 
When police approached the car again, they saw the passenger, a badly beaten woman who said she had been held captive by the driver. She said he had held her for 30 days and had sexually assaulted her. She had a broken arm, possible broken jaw, stab wounds, bruises from being struck with a blunt object, and a leg infection. She was taken to the hospital for treatment. Investigators searched Stewart's home and property, which actually belonged to his mother. They found three bodies over two days, both inside and outside the house. The other residents of the home were safe and unharmed, although the Department of Children and Families took emergency custody of a child. Stewart had been found guilty of burglary and theft in New Jersey in 2007. He had also been found guilty of assault and battery, breaking and entering, and robbery in Massachusetts. He had been arrested three separate times in Springfield in 2017, including one arrest where he was accused of assaulting a woman on the street. While being arrested, he bit an officer on the leg. As the police investigated these crimes, they uncovered witnesses who had been assaulted by Stewart. One woman was walking home late at night after ankle surgery. She was tired and wanted to go home, so when the dark car pulled up alongside her, and the driver asked if she wanted a ride home, she only hesitated for a moment before she got into the car. When she got into the car, he smelled of body odor, and she could tell he had been drinking heavily. She soon realized he was going the wrong way, and he locked the doors. Stuart Weldon was well known in the drug-ridden areas of Springfield and Chicopee. He was considered violent and was known for being a crack user himself. He would find vulnerable women who were drying out or going through withdrawal and give them drugs. Soon he would turn abusive. Most people who knew him said he was given to sudden and public outbursts of brutality, focusing on sick or struggling women. One woman who was familiar with him said he was odd but always seemed gentle. Until the night, he cold-cocked her on the street in late 2016. She screamed rape, and he ran off. Her husband said she was bruised for days after. One unnamed man knew Stuart fairly well and would hang out with him often. Stuart had a girlfriend, and the man said Stuart would beat her frequently. He would tell Stuart to leave her alone, but the girlfriend would still show up, beaten and bruised. Once, while Stuart and his girlfriend were on the street, Stuart began slapping her. The unnamed man and others got involved, but the girlfriend asked them not to get involved because they would make it worse. Investigators are not sure when the women found on Stewart's property died, but can narrow it down slightly based on the dates they were reported missing. The first one reported was America Leiden. She was reported missing on December 1, 2017. America had two daughters, but had struggled with drug addiction ever since her sister had died of a drug overdose in 2010.
America was known for being friendly, generous with hugs, and always quick to smile and laugh. America had started calling herself Jordan, which was the name her sister had often used. She first fell off the radar in late summer of 2017, but no one was worried at first, as she often disappeared for small periods of time. But when she didn't show up for Thanksgiving, they knew something was wrong. Her boyfriend, Jason Walsh, felt like America had started using again, and somehow became known to Stuart. The next missing woman was Ernestine Ryans, who was reported missing on March 18, 2018. She had last been seen on March 8, 2018. She also had two daughters and had struggled with drug addiction. Her brother said she had always tried to be a good mother despite her issues. When she went missing, the family first held out hope that she had just gone to Connecticut. The third victim, Kayla Escalante, had never been reported missing. She'd been homeless for years and was estranged from her family. In addition to her addiction issues, she struggled with mental illness. Kayla often said she wanted to be clean and in 2015, people who knew her thought she had succeeded. That's when she joined the New Day Church of Springfield and was baptized. The members of the church took her under their wing and threw her a baby shower as Kayla was expecting a baby girl. However, she stopped going to church just as suddenly as she had started. In January of 2016, Chicopee police took her to the Bay State Medical Center in Springfield when she threatened to kill herself. Several months later, Springfield police arrested her for possession of crack cocaine. These women were known to many people in the area, particularly at the methadone clinic, but there was no clear indication of how Stewart had met these women. The owner of a liquor store in the area said that Stewart and all three women patronized his store, and America and Ernestine often came in with Stewart. After his arrest, his DNA was taken and entered into a database, where it matched against unsolved sexual assault cases from 2009 and 2017. Stewart was indicted on 52 counts, including murder, rape, kidnapping, and strangulation. In October of 2020, a Hampton Superior Court judge granted two mental health evaluations for Stewart, with an expert for the defense and prosecution. Stewart's trial was supposed to begin in April 2020, but all jury trials in Massachusetts were delayed due to COVID-19. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFC podcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode suggestion, 
send us an email at tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John. Content editing by Brittany Martinez.